Hi parents, welcome to Dear Reading Teacher, a podcast to empower parents who want to teach their child to read and help you better navigate the early reading landscape today. I am your host and your reading teacher, Elizabeth Ford. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope today's episode with my guest, Kate Tinker, the Director of Education and Community Programming at Bookworm Gardens, gives you the confidence to teach your child to read. This is episode 10, Loving Books in Gardens. Hi, Kate. So Kate, where are you coming from today? So I am coming from lovely and chilly Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Sheboygan is one hour north of Milwaukee, and it is the home of the lovely Bookworm Gardens, which is a botanic garden inspired by children's literature and nestled into a community that is right by Lake Michigan. I'm recording from Hall right now um, because we have a very busy office, even in the wintertime. And so I could not find a space at the gardens that was not occupied with all the fun planning that we're doing right now. Got you. Well, thank you for taking the time to record with us and adjust your work environment for the morning so you can make that happen. What role brought you to the world of reading? So actually, I was raised by two teachers. And my mother was an English teacher and then a reading specialist when my brother and I were very young. And then she went into administration at the middle school level. And so I had books around me all of the time as a child. And if I wasn't at home reading, my mom or my grandparents or my dad, I was hanging out as a little assistant in my mom's classroom and checking out all the books that she had all over the place. So uh, literature has really been a huge part of my existence from when I was very young. When I went to school, I wasn't sure I wanted to be a classroom teacher. And so I started to explore different options that would allow me to teach, but in a non-traditional learning environment. So I looked at museums, I looked at libraries, I looked at other nonprofits, and I ended up really zooming in on um, musical education and what it would look like to teach in a classroom that maybe we could have four walls. And my journey led me to Bookworm Gardens, which was like no walls, just lots of incredible, amazing plants, but still a huge emphasis on literature. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how, you know, you and I got to talk is that I reached out to Bookworm Gardens and said, I would love to talk to someone on your team. But can you explain for those that do not know a little bit more about what Bookworm Gardens does? Yeah. So Bookworm Gardens is an independent nonprofit botanic garden. We're located in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. We have the mission to inspire the love of nature and literature in the young and young at heart. And we do that through our botanic garden, which includes 77 different mini garden environments. Each of those environments is inspired by a children's book. So you can enter in the gardens and explore Winnie the Pooh's house. You can see Harold and his purple crayon. You can go explore a magic tree house. All these different really amazing kind of micro environments that are inspired by your favorite books. One of my favorite parts about the gardens is that we have all of the books that inspire the environments in these book boxes. So they are laminated so they can be out in the elements. And the idea is that as a family, you go, you open up the book box, you grab a book, and then you bring that book 
to the space and you read the three pigs in the three pigs environment. And then you can act out, pretend like you're a wolf or one of the pigs in the different houses. Um, so it's a truly immersive experience. I'm so excited to one day get to visit Bookworm Gardens because it sounds like a dream, like a dream come true. My, you know, literacy company is Reading Garden Club. And I think that on one level, I really wanted when I created that idea to bring people into a space where they learn outside. But I feel like you guys just took that mini vision I had and like, I guess with a team of people created all these spaces that I've taken the virtual tour. It just looks so magical. I'm just so happy for all those children and families who get to read the book in that setting and just get inspired in so many different ways. And so I love that you guys are doing this. And how long have you guys been around? So we just finished our 13th season. So we're going to be entering in our 14th season in 2024. We were the seed of an idea by a local Sheboygan woman. Her name is Sandy Livermore, our founder. And in 1999, she was at a conference and she was in an arboretum or a botanic garden. And she saw a group of teenage volunteers reading to young children outside in this environment. And she was like, wow, I need to bring this to Sheboygan. How amazing to have this kind of mentorship and reading situation happening outside without screens. It was kind of a device-free time before we were even maybe having those conversations. And so over the course of 10 years, from 1999 to 2010, she fundraised and friend-raised and made collaborative connections in our community to make Bookworm come to life and really plant that seed and watch it grow. And so it's because of her vision that we uh, get to do what we do. So we started and opened in 2010. And I began my journey of Bookworm in 2016. And so I've been at the gardens for eight years. And we've grown from seven staff members to 28 staff members during that time. We've had an incredibly immense amount of growth. This past season, we saw almost 80,000 visitors through our gates from May through October, which is when we are open to general visitors. In the off-season, in the winter, we also have a nature-based preschool program that I helped to found. We're in our second school year, so that's a really special thing as well. And then other winter programming, because in Wisconsin, you have to embrace the winter. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that, um, like you told us, the story of growth that like one community member saw something possible and then like for 10 years he kept at it you know bringing other people in and now eighty thousand people in one year are drawn to this idea of like literacy and being outside without screens and i feel like that says something about you know what people and families are looking for and what there's a need for, like, we can't just be in Wisconsin, like, and I feel like that's really why I wanted to share your story is that I think this is something you guys are a nonprofit, correct? We are. We're a nonprofit. So we are applying for grants and also rely on donations. Um, but we also have an incredibly philanthropic community. So we have a nominal charge for admission but we're able to offset that by offering no admission for Sheboygan County residents because we are truly a grassroots organization and are created in part because Sheboygan has been so supportive of our project. And I feel like that is the beauty in the story that 
I mean, you can look at the pictures and that's all very important, like the actual experience families have. But I think that that level of community building that your founder started and has continued and it's bringing community together is just like the ultimate vision. Like I had like a small vision, but you guys have made this so big. And I think that more communities should know about this this timeline, how long it takes, <laughs> but also, you know, how many people it takes to build something like that and know that it's possible and that I do believe that it needs to be grassroots to be really meaningful to a community for you guys to have cultivated that. It's because they're like, well, this is ours, right? This is our Bookworm Gardens. And I want to say your town's name, right? I have this my first time. Correct me if I'm wrong. Sheboygan? Sheboygan? Sheboygan. Sheboygan. Okay. I was like, it's coming off too easily. Am I saying it right? Tell you the truth. I have to admit, I am not a native Sheboyganite. Oh. I I grew up on the south side of Chicago in the suburbs. It's an incredibly diverse area. And so when I applied for a position to move to Sheboygan, I had never heard of it before. And I was like, how do you say Sheboygan? What is this place? And so it's a, I've been here for 20 years now, and it is just an incredibly magical spot where um, community supports each other and really wants projects to thrive. Well, in my role at the gardens, I'm director of education and community programming. So that community programming piece is just as essential as the education. Right. And so most recently, we um, worked with Little Free Library, which has the book sharing boxes. And we partnered with 13 other collaborative organizations like all over Sheboygan to install 10 book sharing boxes through this program called Read in Color. And the program specifically aim is to increase diverse books in our households. And um, Little Free Library has been working with another organization to identify book deserts in our communities. And Sheboygan, the majority of our county is considered a book desert, which means that there are not um, equitable access to books in individual households. And that has negative ramifications for education, for children, and for all ages. And so it's this idea of tackling these book deserts head on by infusing communities with diverse literature. And our community is incredibly diverse. We have a huge Mexican immigrant community, Spanish-speaking community. We have a Hmong community here. So it was really important for Bookworm to think about diverse literature when we're installing gardens but also when we were looking to add book boxes that have diverse books. So that's been a really fun project that we've worked on recently and wouldn't be possible without the art supply thrift store and our local art center and our local coffee shop that hosts our LGBT plus alliance and all of these different nonprofit entities and community groups coming together and saying, hey, diverse books are really important and this is an issue for our community and we want to do something about it. Yeah, I love that. And I love that little free library, I think, has made like immeasurable impact. I know I live in a community where we don't have bookstores or libraries like functioning at all. And so those book boxes, which I checked the little little free library, like app, they have an app where you can kind of find boxes that people have publicized at least. And none of the boxes that I found in our communities, because they exist, are publicized, but like they're constantly being, what's the word I'm looking for? Sometimes I lose English words, Kate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you're bouncing English and Spanish, I'm sure that that's easy to do. Yeah. Oh my goodness. 
replenished. This is not the word I'm looking for, but yes, replenished. So they're constantly being replenished and, you know, people are returning books that they borrowed or, you know, exchanged, whatever the, you know, proper word is that I can't think of right now. But yeah, I love those book boxes. And I think that it's surprising to hear that your community is considered a like a book desert. Like I'm very curious to know, like what, what are the criteria? Yeah, so they've been able to narrow that down. There's um, part of it is socioeconomic, but then the other part of it is this research study that just came out that basically says that if you have 100 books in your household, that your likelihood of uh, higher education and kind of being able to read and literacy rates are positively impacted by having 100 books. It doesn't even matter if it's all children's books when you're a child. Just having exposure to books and having people in your household that are reading, having examples of people reading is really, really important. So I'll send you the link. The research is fascinating. And it's also really new. So when we found out about it through the opening library, we were able to share it with our local library. It was new to them. And they were able to then start thinking about programmatically where they needed to be expanding their reach in our direct community to kind of hit some of these hotspots to try to uh, positively reach people. I think that the idea that you have a collection of books that can be really scary, like books can be expensive, that can be a barrier to entry. But what Bookworm's trying to do is encourage that you can have a book that you read in a garden space. You can have a book that you check out from a library and take to a park. You can grab a book from a little free library that there are a lot of different ways to be able to read and that it doesn't always have to be like a beautifully curated shelf of your own book that you own as a household. I think I've evolved from that perspective. I'm not going to lie. I was the mom that was like, oh my God, I've had that book for 30 years. Can you just like caress it softer? But I've gotten to the point where I feel like access is more important. Joy is more important. And I'm like a child wanting to read the book and grow into adults that want to read is more important than preserving the sacredness of our personal libraries, which I definitely, I really am honestly was one of those. And I know that there's some people who are going to think like, I just got some new books from family members who love us and know that I'm in a book desert. And after she reads, most of them, they're going to go in the book bin, the free book bin, because she's not going to want to read most of them multiple times, but she's going to want access to more. And we got to share with other people. And so we've benefited from that too. other people who have that giving spirit and understand that we will get back when we give in that way. And it is hard when you are raised a little bit different. Oh, definitely. And I think that there is room for both. So one of the most special memories that I have as a child is reading Eric Carl, Polar Bear, Polar Bear, What Do You Hear? And so at my baby shower almost five years ago now, my mom gifted me the copy of Polar Bear, Polar Bear that I read as a child. And it's signed by Eric Carl. And she met at an educational conference. And so he signed the book. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I did how do I even, I don't even want to like touch this. I'm, it's Eric Carl. But then now, of course, one of my favorite books, we have that copy that my child reads. We have a board book that my baby reads. We have the one with the noises and the buttons and stuff that we got gifted that I normally wouldn't buy it for my kids, but they love. And so we have four different versions of the book and that won't be forever. For right now, it's their favorite because it's my favorite. And I wonderful that eventually those less precious copies will 
end up in a little free library or end up gifted to someone for a baby shower. I'm all about thrifting baby shower gifts or reusing gifts. I, I once saw something that said that like gifting something that you've used as a mother to a new mother is like giving someone a hug. Like, it was the best. Yeah, this is something I loved and that was important to me when I read with my baby and like here for you. And when you're not going to use it or you're done with it or you don't use it at all, that's okay. Then you gift it to someone else and it's just like your reciprocal piece. I love that idea of books that they kind of like have these different lives. And the one that's signed by Eric Carl will stay in my collection and then it maybe will get gifted to one of my daughters one day. But there's room, I think, room for both those precious memory books. Right. All still kind of come and go. Yeah. What a beautiful story, Kate. Thank you for sharing. I was like, this is the episode I won't cry. Lady, goodness. That was so sweet, mom, your mom to you to, you know, preserve that book the best she could because obviously you guys were reading it. But now you can preserve it as well and have those memories. And I love that your children love that book because you loved it and you told them that story and they feel that connection to your young self. Okay, I have a question for you that may be hard, but I don't know. What is your favorite experience at Bookworm Gardens that you think families could, should replicate in their own outdoor environments, backyards, local parks? What do you think is like the top easy one? I think that it's breaking down the understanding that books need to be read only snuggled up on the couch or before bedtime. And I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying like read the books snuggled up on the couch, read the books at bedtime. But then if the weather allows you, like take those books outside and incorporate those experiences, those themes, those ideas into your nature-based play. So at the gardens, we are 77 books strong in the gardens, but we have a thousand books probably in our basement storage and that we use actively in programming. So we're taking those books and they're inspiring invitations to play for our youngest learners, sensory-based experiences, entire days of curriculum for our nature-based school program for threes and fours. And sometimes they're just set out at the beginning of programs so that families come they sit down and they're just flipping through the pages and looking at the books and they see something maybe outside in their environment that is similar to something they're seeing on the page. They're making connections, they're forming relationships, and vocabulary starts to increase. And so it's basically taking the meaning of a book and bringing it into another environment can give it a whole nother lens, which I think you can do anywhere that you have access to an outside space. That can be your own backyard, a public park, out on a veranda or a porch. You're reading a book about birds and you're outside and you see a bird. And then you're more likely to have that conversation about that bird. And so just simple things like a change of environment, I think, can like open up a world of possibilities in terms of interpretation and connection, multi-generationally, especially about that book. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And I remember hearing one time a homeschool mom talking about this is her older students, but like how at a certain point they liked to go on field trips, but she made them always do research on where they were going and like having books on like where you're going on vacation, having books on like where you're going to visit grandma, where she lives and just taking learning outside of the house or the library, which is our, you know, go-to thoughts, I think is absolutely on the money and an easy thing to do. What kinds of logistics has your team figured out when it comes to reading and learning in a garden space? I heard you say 
you laminate the books. Yeah. Is there anything else that you can give to parents as a tip? Yeah. So we laminate our books, which is wonderful for a larger organization, but might not be possible for everyone. The other thing that we will do is we will sometimes take a book and put it in like a waterproof like zipper pouch and just like pop it in there and then bring it out. We will also have like backpacks of copies of books that are all like seasonally focused. So like you might have a couple of books around your house that are all winter related. And then you've got your gloves and your mittens and your hats and your hand warmers. And like it's all in a backpack and it's just like our winter outdoor kit incorporating those children's books into it. And so I think that idea of being ready for all weathers is definitely an important thing. I used to say that there are no bad uh, weather, just inclement kind of clothing choices. But I think that that I have shifted my idea on that phrase because access to appropriate clothing for weather is an important conversation to have in terms of not everyone has access to the types of clothing that you need to be outside. So we see that all the time at the gardens. We have field trips that come from 17 different counties around Sheboygan, Green Bay, which is Brown County, Milwaukee County, Oshkosh, all over the place. And you know right away when a group walks off the bus, they are geared up to be outside for rain or for snow or for whatever the situation is. And we as educators are able to adjust our experience to make sure that no one is uncomfortable, that there are no safe or inclement weather situations. But I think that um, doing the best that you can to make sure that you can be geared out for outside. And for my family, that includes me going to thrift stores and finding used like snowsuits and things that we can use to kind of get out in all weather. Even yesterday, it was like negative 10 degrees and the nature-based preschool was a go. At Bookworm, they were out in increments and teachers were just really monitoring those kids. Like, what are they reacting to? Is anybody getting too cold? Do we need to go in? Is there a small warming station we can do? And just sort of keeping close taps on your learner and what they're comfortable with in different environments. Yeah, I can pay back on that and say, because I'm in a different climate, I am in the tropical climate. And one thing I've noticed for young people in this climate that I've had to learn, especially because my child has asthma, is that lots of sun exposures sounds nice, but when you want them to read and not be like, I'm hot, you know, shade and quality shading that, you know, make sure that the child can comfortably pay attention to what you want them to pay attention, I think is important. And staying hydrated and all these small things that I think with going outside to learn is important. I think, like you said, in making it accessible to everybody and understanding. Sometimes accessibility is just because your environment is not welcoming to that and maybe finding a different environment like if there's no shade and it's a certain time of day we're not going to go outside it's just yeah. a setup for my child at least because she's sensitive to the heat and it triggers her asthma but yeah like mm-hmm. I think that reading does not and should not always be inside and yeah all right how does bookworm gardens facilitate multi-generational community building yeah, so this is a huge piece for us, and we have seen just incredible moments happening, especially with children that are coming with their parents or grandparents or on other people in their family that maybe are of a grandparent base. So at the gardens, we typically don't, if we see a child and they're maybe 
pretty far away from uh, Guardian. We don't say, hey, where's your mom? Where's your dad? It's like, hey, where is your adult? Because we're not making any assumptions that it has to be a family grandparent. It can be your chosen family. It can be whatever. But having those spaces to explore literature and explore the outdoors through different lenses. So some of the children's books that we have in our gardens are new. They're books that were published in the last couple of years, and they might be very familiar to younger learners. The other books are like the tried and true classics that have been around for forever. The Winnie the Pooh the Herald and the Purple Crayon, some of our fairy tale stories that a grandparent is going to remember. And how, for me, one of the most special spaces is our environment inspired by Harry the Dirty Dog, where the story is about a dog and he doesn't want to have a bath. And so he runs away from home and he gets super, super dirty, but he gets so dirty that he turns from a white dog with black socks to a black dog with white socks. And his owners don't even recognize him, but he jumps into the bath get clean so that they will realize that he is Harry. And in Bookworm, we have a tub and a filtered and a Harry, and you can scrub Harry and help to get him clean. And it's right next to the book box. And so the grandparent grabs the book, goes, I read this book because it's it's from a while ago. And the children are just so excited to learn about the books. I, the grandparents or the adult is reading the book, the child is scrubbing the dog this amazing moment it's right by our offices and so usually in the springtime you open up your window and you can hear this amazing story being read and it wafts into our upstairs window and it's just the most special thing every single spring it's like i wait for the harry the journey the dog story from grandparents and grandchildren thank you for sharing that oh my goodness i can like visualize it you're a good storyteller <laughs> i was like oh and then they're scrubbing the dog. That's so adorable. Yeah, it's really special. Do you think Bookworm Gardens can also reach reluctant readers? Like, how do you guys try to approach that group, if at all? Yeah, so we see a lot of reluctant readers in our field trip programming. And I think that the thing that we incorporate at Bookworm is play. It's this idea of using your imagination and of seeing the literature in a different way than always on two pages. So... Say that it's a really rainy day and everyone's got their rain boots on and we're splashing in puddles and it's time to read a story. It might be a little too wet to sit. So one of our educators might read that story aloud. And that is still a really important way for a child to connect that environment space while they're jumping in puddles, using the movement um, and some of just all of their senses to incorporate into the experience of reading that book. And I like to think that then if they see that book in another setting, that they have that positive association with this amazing experience that they had shopping in puddles while they're being told that story. I think we also really successfully use imaginative play when we are thinking about some of these books. So sometimes we're not like doing a read aloud, showing the book, reading the book aloud to a group of learners like you would traditionally think that we do that often too. But instead, we're using the classroom to reenact Black and the Beanstalk. And I'm having different learners come up to different characters to talk about the story in a way that um, puts them in the space of Jack or the cow or the mom or whatever it looks like. And so I think that reluctant readers might view some of these stories just through a different lens by being in a different environment than the four walls of a classroom. Yeah, I love that. 
idea of imaginative play um, and acting out stories. And I think that is something that I wish I had done more in the classroom. I feel like that is not something in a traditional public school in the United States, at least, that teachers are encouraged to do. But I'm wondering, you know, for some of the, my reluctant readers, if I could have engaged them that way. But I can see in a garden space, like, why not? <laughs> Yeah, when the three pigs houses right behind you, of course, you're going to protect the wall. Exactly. Why not? I saw that in the video. I was like, oh, my God, I really want to play act that one. I know that one in my heart. I don't need the luck. I can play act that one. (laughs) And I saw that, you know, in the mind of a reluctant reader, like having that thought, like I can reenact that. That looks fun. You did mention, Kate, that you are a parent. What lessons have you brought from your work experience as a bookworm garden, you know, community builder, educator to your home? Like, what are you doing at home? If we can dig into your home. Yeah, we, so I have two daughters. Phoebe is turning four this week and Harriet is one and a half. And when I was building my home library, I was quite naive. I was like, why does anyone have board books? They're still scattered a little. Like, I'm so into the illustrations. The, like, the bigger books, they're, like, beautiful, and you can see the illustrations better. So I was, like, buying all these beautiful big books. And then my lovely daughter wasn't born and just was, like, ripping the heck out of these books. And I was like, no, because in my mind, it was like, they're so precious. They're beautiful. They're incredible. They're these works of art. I really view illustrators as true artists. And now I have so many board books in this house. I can't even count. I think they haven't bought a regular hard book in a long time. <laughs> so, but what I do is they're not precious. Uh-huh. They are used. Uh-huh. And so if they get food on them because my child doesn't want to let go of the board book while she's eating, then they get food on them because she wants to look at that book while she's eating. We have books in, with our toys. We have books. Out that stay outside, you know, protected from the elements. We have books in our bedrooms that we have for bedtime. We like have board books basically everywhere. They're in the car for when we are taking trips. I'm really kind of incorporating them into a normal thing that we do multiple times a day. And that doesn't always necessarily need to be me reading to them, but be them engaging with those at whatever level they feel like is appropriate. So Phoebe, my older daughter, has started to read to my younger daughter and so she has some of the books memorized and she'll show her baby sister in these books. This amazing little like maternal moment for the two of them, which we've had very few of because they just, you know, sharing is hard. But then those moments come and they're around the book. It's just so special. And then Harriet has like in her play area, like a stack of books that she flips through and looks at and it could be upside down and she could be chewing on them. But like, yeah, she's getting comfortable having those in all different types of environments. I love that. I love I'm so sorry about your beautiful books, but I love that you had a moment of like because I had the same moment. So I, I, I feel that is bad. People were gifting me board books. And I was like, why do I need this? I have the same story and, you know, like a paper version, paperback version. And then, yes, my child ate the books, got the food on the books. Yeah. And then I saw the value in the books. And now we actually, my child's eight. She still loves a good board book because the board books are interactive. Yeah. And they're designed to be that way, right? Like we had one that where you put Cheerios, it's like a series, 
on the book. She still wants to I read that. that. I think that's for the goldfish crackers where you put the little thing in. Goldfish, cool. Yeah. I know. So cute. So cute. So I appreciate that lesson as well, mom. I had the same hard lesson. And then people were gifting me ones with mirrors and like all kinds of like bells and whistles that I was just like, you just need a story. But no, when they're really young, it helps. It helps. It's not like one I think is better than the other. I think it can help for an active child who likes sensory experiences. The other thing that I have just been blown away by is books that have actual children and photographs of actual children in realistic settings. So that is not something that we've incorporated too, too much at Book Farm because it's those books age, I think, a little bit quicker with photographs and the clothing choices and all that kind of stuff, even the ones that are the most basic. But for a child to see something that looks like them doing something that they might be nervous about, like going to the dentist. One of my daughter's favorite books is about a girl who goes to the doctor's office and has a checkup. And but it's a real child that they photographed with a real doctor and like he her getting a shot and that she's crying but then she's okay and she gets a band-aid and a sticker and so it's we bring out those books as a way to help prep her for some of those experiences that she's feeling a little bit nervous about and she can relate to those in a different way because there is an actual child in that book so that's been a really big change too in terms of like the books that I gravitate towards for my home collection yeah, I agree with that like real world lesson. I had to learn about pictures or picture books with real photographs of children experiencing life. And I remember my child um, was blessed enough to go to a public Montessori school. Yeah, when she was three or four before COVID. I know it was such a blessing. And I think I need to bring a Montessori educator onto this podcast so we can discuss their methodology and their thought process because it's sometimes very different. I think from the traditional mainstream, um, one of the things is that they don't have fake talking animals or magical anything in the books that they read to the children. And I just felt like as a literacy educator, when my child went to those schools and I was told that, that they were missing out on like half of the possible literature that they could give to the children. But I do think that there's a value in that type of literature that's not appreciated enough. And if a Montessori environment is going to value it and everyone else outside does the magical unicorns and mermaids and all that kind of stuff, then that's fine. So in the end of the, you know, lesson learned as a parent, I was fine with that. But I did recognize that I didn't realize how much children love those books. You know, oh, they yeah. like the sparkles, but they want to look at themselves. Yeah, everyone does. And I like the distance is that everyone wants to see themselves represented, which is why I think diversity in literature is such an important thing. It's important to have magical creatures. It's important to have real life experiences. When we were planning curriculum and really thinking about educational philosophy for our nature-based people program, we serve mostly three and four-year-olds. It's a two-morning-a-week program. It's usually family's first foray into an adult childhood experience. We're outside over 50% of the time. And we decided that there are benefits to Montessori. There are benefits to Waldorf. There are benefits to Reggie and Amelia. 
that there were aspects of all of those that we really wanted to incorporate in nature-based learning. And that philosophy has been true to Bookworm since our educational inception, like that inquiry-based learning and that outcried incorporation of literature was weaving its way through all of our programs. When it came to choosing kind of some philosophies for a more formal education program, our teaching team was like, we are not the type of program that's going to just one we can choose some amazing things out of all of these aspects. And as long as we're clearly communicating that with families and they're opting in to that being an experience that they want. So some families are choosing us because they trust Bookworm. Some families are choosing us because they want nature-based and they feel like their child is going to have enough time with the rest of their education sitting at a desk and they don't want that for a three-year-old. Others are choosing it because we have this amazing, imaginative, Waldorf-inspired situation happening, but others are choosing it because they want some more of that Montessori, open shelving and beautiful natural materials to play and explore and problem solve. And so it's really kind of beautiful. Then you get all these families that have a little bit of a different experience and they're all coming together. And so those learners come from different backgrounds too. And I think that that really is one. The second half of the school year, when you see more playing and less like side-by-side parallel play, right now in January, our school year starts in September. So we're in what, five. You're really starting to see these relationships form between these three and four-year-olds. My daughter's in the program right now. So that's especially meaningful for me this year because I get to see her experience the world that I kind of helped to create. What a dream capture, right? I know. It's an, it's amazing. And it's really, you know, meeting the need in our community. We have a nature-based 4K program, which is wonderful. And so we're able to kind of have a good morning meet three-year-old program and then learners that want to stay outside their families will can enroll them in our in a park locally that has a four-year-old program. So there's a lot of opportunities to stay outside and to experience the world through that lens. Okay. Thank you for sharing about that. I all that programming, I think, and the, you know, honest lessons learned as parents we've had. I think that this has been such an inspiring conversation. Like I am like, how can I start a bookworm gardens here like tomorrow? Like who do I what parent is gonna do this with me? I just think that you guys are doing such amazing things and there's so many layers in the things you and I have talked about today that I wanna like hold on to you for the next four hours, Kate, but I know you have things to do. So my last question for you is what, and if you want to share anything else about Bookworm Gardens, now would be a good time. Is there anything else you wanted to share? So I would say that there are just a lot of different ways to uh, stay involved in our story. So you can visit our website at bookroomgardens.org to learn more about our organization. We have a video that kind of can give you a glimpse into what we do. And we also have our full book list that will soon be edited to add the books that we're going to be having in 2024. So Frog and Toad is coming to us. Rainbow Fish is making its way to us in 2024. And the Pout Pout Fish, which I'm very excited about. So some super exciting new books coming up. And we have content that I think that is important if you're local and can visit, but also to be really impactful if you are further away and you need to put us on your bucket list for the road trip. And so visiting our website and your Facebook and Instagram to learn more. And I'm just so thankful for the opportunity to come and chat about my journey with reading and Bookworm Gardens. And thank you so much. Thank you, Kate. Okay, last fun question. What is your favorite children's book currently? Why is it still Eric Carl Carl's Polar Bear, Polar Bear? That is, I think, one of the classics. 
Another one that I read as a child that I absolutely loved was Allison Zinnia's, which is an ABC book. We have it at the gardens, but it's all about how Allison gives a begonia to Beryl and Beryl gives the calicanthus to and it like passes along these different flowers. That's like this reciprocity of gifting flowers, which is really special. But I actually brought my most recent favorite. So it's called Hello Lighthouse and it's by Zilke Blackall. And we installed this garden two years ago at Bookworm. And it is the most magical and beautifully illustrated story. And I told you how illustrations are the thing for me. Um, all about this lighthouse and this lighthouse keeper and his family. And he raises his family in this lighthouse. And it's about time. And while time passes, his family changes. And how this lighthouse becomes such an important uh, symbol for them. But it also incorporates all of these different weather patterns. So it's the ocean in fog and in storms and ice over and how the lighthouse is a symbol for safety during all those different things. And so as an educator, a bookworm, I get to talk all about the different weather and how it impacts the way that we experience the world and nature. But my daughter has recently become obsessed with the book. And I think it's because it's the story of a family in such a beautifully illustrated way. And she is relating to it right now. So The Last Couple Nights, the only book that she wants to read before bed. And that's been really cool to read it to her through her eyes. Yeah. So Hello Lighthouse. Hello Lighthouse. Yeah. Hello Lighthouse. And Sophie Blackhall has some incredible work. So definitely check her out, author and illustrator. I feel like I've heard that name and not to extend our conversation, but like I have to talk about this book now because it sounds fascinating. But speaking of field trip reading and reading outside of, you know, your couch and, you know, the library or, you know, inside, we have lots of lighthouses where we live because we live on an island. Mm. Yeah. And I could totally see us taking that book there and just thinking about the families that had to maintain those lighthouses and so much I can imagine. And I also 1000% agree as a former art student who learned about illustration from the back end and like how they're paid. We do not honor or pay the book illustrators of our children's books enough. Like I feel like they need to be celebrated on an equal level, especially if it's a children's book as the author who wrote the words, equal equal because it's like so important i'm trying to i need to find one of these i mean like this one it's literally they she's about to have a baby and it's in the round of her family as she is about to have this baby rounds like the lighthouse room that they were living i mean just the illustrations how beautiful i mean oh i guess this is the quilt her new baby i just all oh, the circles and i think that like illustrations for me, are the thing. But for other educators that I work with, it's the quality of a read aloud, or it's the content that relates to a child, or it's nonfiction or fiction or diverse authors and illustrators. And just so many people have so many different opinions on what makes the children's book great. And I'm always so curious to chat with them about it. Yes. Very good point. Very good point, Kate. But as a former artist, I'm like, try to show a book to a child, young child without pictures. And I have done that because there's this one silly book that I think is called like a book without pictures or something like that. And they were offended from the title. They're like, I'm done. And I said, but it's a joke. There's like actually like, you know, things to engage you. It'll make you laugh. And they're like, 
no, <laughs> what's happening here? But no, that is a very fair point. I think that like the quality of the read aloud absolutely can make a break or book. Like if, you know, you have a robotic voice. I don't know if you can make all the world special like I feel like it is or, you know, whatever book your favorite children's book is. But thank you so much, Kate, for this joyful conversation we've been able to have this morning and your time in sharing about Bookworm Gardens and your experiences as a mom and educator. And I hope everyone goes and checks out Bookworm Gardens and just gets inspired like I have been for the past couple of years where I've been following you guys' story. So thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you have a beautiful day and that you grab a book and head out soon. We will. We will. We will do. And you too. <laughs> have a good one. Thank you. Thank you for listening, parents. The purpose of this podcast is to ensure parents have a place to ask early reading questions, big or small. Every family story is valid, so please reach out if you want to share your early reading journey with us. Use the form link in the podcast description or contact me via social media. Until the next chat, happy reading, fams.